This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. It's been a long time coming. Mark Weber, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure to be with uh, someone from another continent like this. Thank you. Have you been to South Africa? I've not been to South Africa. I've been to West Africa and Northwest Africa. I lived for a time in Ghana. I taught at a secondary school in Ghana. And, uh, but I don't know South Africa. My mother's been there. Many friends have been to South Africa. But uh, it's a country I'd like to visit, but haven't. How, how did you find Ghana? Well, this was some years ago, and uh, I, I, it was a very, well, one of the things that I learned from traveling to going many different countries is to understand how different peoples make different kinds of societies. And um, one thing I learned is that the premise that many people believe that we can sort of just make any kind of, any people can make any kind of society is, is, is really false. Uh, I think respect for human beings means also respect for the diversity and the, the differences between human beings, because human beings don't exist except as members of some social community, some nation, some tribe, something. And uh, I think that many of the problems of the world today are based on a kind of false uh, uh, disregard for the uniqueness and the distinctiveness of different peoples and different cultures. Yes, uh, I think you're correct. Uh, people don't want to celebrate our differences. Well, it's not even celebrating, just acknowledging, really, and to acknowledge that, I mean, healthy societies are not just collections of individuals. They are, there are people with something more in common. There's more to them than just the, the, the collection of their individuality. And uh, that we, we see that throughout history. And this is, a, I, I think, a, a, a real sin, you might say, of the modern age that uh, uh, suppresses this and, uh, and, and, and obliterates, you might say, distinctiveness mm. in that way. Just briefly, what is your biography? Well, I was born and raised in Portland, Oregon. Um, I, from an early age, I had a, an unusual sort of interest in the world and in history. This is, I, I'm sure, uh, was very much uh, fostered by my father. My father was a, a journalist. He read widely. Uh, he was um, stationed in China at the end of World War II. He was in the Second World War. He's now dead, unfortunately. And when, when, when I was born, he was serving in the U.S. forces in the Korean War. He was an officer in the U.S. Marine Corps. But I had an interest in the world that was very unusual. And so I tend to look at the world and also our subject of the Boer War from a more uh, historical perspective. I don't have, I, I, I try to uh, not have an emotional uh, one side or the other. In fact, that's a big problem too, is that many, many people look at any kind of issue in terms of who, who, what side are we on? Who's gonna win? And I, I try to have a more detached uh, view like this. But I grew up in Portland, Oregon. I was, I was well-educated. I was rather a leftist when I was young. Uh, I I'm sorry to hear. <laughs> <laughs> well, I left the United States to um, get out of the Vietnam War, and uh, which I thought was a stupid, stupid war. People were dying stupidly. 
and uh, I was very involved, actually, in a big campaign to raise money for Biafra, which was this breakaway region of uh, Nigeria. And I ended up uh, with a, a Biafra relief organization in Germany. It could have been one in France or some other country, but I got to uh, live there. And I worked there. I was 18 or so, and I, I learn German, but I travel a great deal in Europe. And I ask many, many questions about the Second World War, about history. And I understood how differently uh, and how people look at things there. And then I, I was had this great interest in Africa. And I uh, went down through West Africa and so forth and got a job teaching in a secondary school in Ghana. All those experiences had a big impact on my life. Um, I went to graduate school, well, I got a bachelor's degree and then later a master's degree at Indiana University. And uh, since then, I've been devoted to um, trying to raise, I think, public awareness about history, because one of the, thing, I think, great failings of our time is the, a, a lack of understanding about the past, because um, this is part of, the, I think, the arrogance of our time, that we know better than everybody else. We're mm -hmm. smarter. Uh, we all our, our grandparents, our great grandparents were just hopelessly backward and ignorant. And I think that's not only arrogant, but very, very dangerous. Uh, uh, the great problem uh, human beings are, are still human beings a century ago, five centuries ago, 10 centuries ago. And the essential things that make us human and the kind of dilemmas that we face as human beings have always been and will always be with us. Um, but and, and I, I, I think that understanding, appreciating, and learning from history in a, uh, in, in, in a clear-eyed way is just really crucial. Anyway, that's, I don't want really to talk about myself. I have two children, uh, a stepson, I have uh, married, I, uh, uh, I have a pretty good life. I live in Southern California. Um, the weather is very nice here. I think <laughs> that's a lot like uh, Cape Town, I guess. And uh, I have a good circle of, of, of friends and uh, in my personal life, not, not pretty boring, I guess, <laughs> not too extravagant, but um, uh, uh, I try to uh, devote myself to this task of uh, raising public awareness, I think, about crucial issues, which are very highly polemicized and distorted in our time. What is the Institute for Historical Review? Well, I'm the director of the Institute for Historical Review. It's a small kind of think tank or publishing company here in California. And uh, we publish a great number of books and, well, we distribute a lot of books and so and, and other things. And I, I talk especially about the 20th century history because how uh, the, the post-war period or the period we live in today is really very largely a result of the outcome of the Second World War especially the dominant role of the United States and of American influence and power in the world is a consequence of that. After the, and and um, so we deal a great deal with that. But uh, especially I try to understand and promote uh, this awareness based on that, because when we look at current events, I think it's very important to look at them from a historical point of view. And we look at, when we look at history, we should look at it in terms of what's the relevance uh, today? How does it fit today? And that's why I focus, and we focus, very, very much on historical uh, uh, events and trends and so forth that help explain uh, the problems, the situations, and the challenges we, we face today. So 
Okay, why is the Anglo-Boer War important? The Bangla War is not just, it's important because it's a, well, it's, it's first of all, a great, a fascinating story. It's a, it's a re remarkable story. Uh, it's the story of a small group of settlers, white settlers from Europe, mostly Dutch, but also some Huguenot French, some German, who uh, came to first Cape Town, the South Africa region, and who wanted to live their own lives. They were a remarkably stalwart, uh, astonishing people. You know, I, I mean, maybe it sounds sexist, but people say South African Afrikaner women are perhaps the most beautiful women in the world. That's how I agree. <laughs> My wife's Afrikaans. Tough group of people. And of course, as you know, in the 1840s, uh, they, they had the great trek because they didn't want to be ruled by the British. They were, we're going to do it our way. And they went into what is now, well, Transvaal, uh, Orange uh, Free State. They founded these republics, which at the time were largely uninhabited. There was almost really nobody there. This is also really unknown. I mean, the whole racial problem developed in, in a way outside of, outside of that. And uh, they wanted to live their own lives, and they did. And they, they made a remarkable civilization out of the Transvaal South African Republic, the Orange Free State. This is a remarkable story, an admirable story, really. Any, any people, any group that achieved what they did would find that remarkable. But then they came up against the power of the British Empire. The British Empire was determined to impose a kind of hegemony over Africa as a totality. Cecil Rhodes, of course, was a big figure in this. But the crucial factor was that gold and diamonds were discovered in the Transvaal and the Orange Free State. And so people began flooding in from especially English to grab as much of the wealth that was under the soil, you might say, of uh, Transvaal and the Orange Free State. Well, of course, the Afrikaners, the Boers, farmers, the Boers did not want to be uh, overwhelmed by these outsiders, Utlanders, these, these foreigners that came in. And the British, though, were uh, determined secretly because they like to put things, the British government liked to put things in very altruistic, noble sounding words to grab control of this area. And that led to the first and then but especially the second Boer War, the Anglo-Boer War of 1899 to 1902. And for understandable reasons, this most of the sympathy of the world was on the side of the Boers because the, the war that the British, and again, I, my article I, focuses especially on the very crucial role that the Jewish uh, money people wanted to grab, especially gold and diamonds. Already, uh, especially Jewish interests had taken control of the diamond uh, trade, the diamonds of South Africa, the, uh, already before uh, even the war broke out, and worked with Cecil Rhodes, to grab control of this. But the, the remarkable uh, thing, I, I think, is that there's few wars in history that are as mercenary, as self-interested, as selfish as the British war against uh, the two Boer republics. Uh, and, and this is, uh, it, despite all the altruism, despite all the big words, the, the, the British Empire and, and Britain in general has, has 
tried to cloak itself in. This was really a grab for territory, for gold, for diamonds, for power. As part of a plan, Cecil Rhodes, of course, was interested in uh, Cairo to Cape Town. He wanted British control to extend throughout the entire continent of Africa. Now, I mean, there's things one can say for and against empire, but <clears throat> one of the, I guess, great tragedies for me of the British Empire, and particularly as example, as a manifest in the Anglo-Boer War, is that uh, empires often, people in empires confuse the source of their strength with the expression of their strength. The British Empire was an expression of English strength, but by, uh, but oftentimes what happens is that uh, empire degrades and, and, and betrays the very people who bring about the empire in the first place. And Britain lost something of itself, of, of who it really is and what it's, what it's, what it's all about ultimately in its empire building and I think manifest in the Boer War because this is really, a, I mean, a shameful, I think a terribly shameful episode in British history uh, because it's, it's, there's few wars that are as blatant a contest between a David and Goliath on the uh, in, uh, David and Goliath, and as uh, rapacious, as mm. greedy a war as uh, the Anglo Boer War of eighteen ninety nine to nineteen o two, and then the courage uh, and the uh, of the of the Boers and how they fought is another just remarkable mm. story, and then finally the uh, uh, oppressive way that the British fought the war too. I mean, very, very few people realize that more women and children died in that war in the concentration camps the British had set up than died militarily in, in the conflict. And sure. I mean, it's just, it, it's, it's a really horrible story. And I use the word concentration camp very uh, pointedly because that's what the British called them. They called them concentration camps. Now, it didn't have, it didn't, it didn't have then or now, or didn't have the, the you know, the terrible, um, uh, 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 image that it does today because of the Second World War in Germany and so forth. Concentration camps means just basically a place where they ground, rounded up and put in a lot of people. They concentrated them. But uh, it, was, it was a horrible thing. It was a really awful thing. But that's how guerrilla wars are. And that's what the war that the Boers fought after the cities were captured by the British. Mm -hmm. The Boers fought a guerrilla war. And guerrilla wars are always very, very bloody, messy, horrible, horrible things. And the Vietnam War was like this. The, well, countless guerrilla uh, war, Afghan war for both the British, the Russians, and the Americans have all seen what guerrilla war really, really involves. So uh, uh, above all, I mean, I, this, the story is both heroic and tragic and, and moving in, in many ways. And I wish people understood more about this saga, this story of the Afrikaners, and and how they 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 built this remarkable society, and it was crushed under tremendous power. Uh, the mm. British Empire was, of course, the greatest empire in the world at the time, um, and it's a it's a terrible tragedy. And today, of course, uh, there's only you might say mm. the receding vestiges of of that still left in Southern Africa. Okay, so Mark. Uh... 
I've been wanting to talk about this for a while. So would you mind taking me through the chronology of the Anglo-Boer War? Um, yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll try my best in just a few minutes. Um, basically, again, the, the Afrikaners, Afrikaners and the Boers are not quite the same thing. Afrikaners are people who are Afrikan, but some, many Afrikaners, some of the Afrikaners did not leave uh, Cape Town in the 1840s in the Great Trek. The Boer Republics uh, were founded by the, the, the people who made the Great Trek. And, um, uh, and they, they built these societies. They, were, they, were, uh, they weren't highly sophisticated people. Um, the great leader of the Boers was uh, Paul Kruger, Om Kruger, who as a young man was already a remarkable horseman, uh, fighter. He fought in his first battles when he was, uh, what, 16 or something. Uh, a, 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 a tough, stalwart man who was respected for being honest, sincere, straightforward. Those are qualities we don't see much nowadays. No. The modern democratic world seems to produce a kind of leader who is always equivocating, uh, watching, his, uh, watching over uh, behind him to uh, carefully watch what he says, who doesn't really seem to have much in the way of any kind of principle. Uh, who doesn't have much uh, character. Um, and for a, another a term that people used to think was admirable, a kind of manliness, a kind of stoicism about You life, can't say which, that these days. <laughs> no, you cannot say that these days. And I know it's uh, politically incorrect to say so, but, but never. So we, are going to, are, so we are going to say it then. We are going to say it we're then. Gonna because... say it. We're going to say it. Well, throughout history, these, <laughs> these have been virtues. I mean, people have recognized these as virtues throughout human history. And that's one of the features of our time in which we're told, oh, no, no, we can't. Uh, we're, we're a lot better than our grandparents, great grandparents. This is really madness, I think. But, you know, putting that aside for a moment. <laughs> um, so, uh, again, uh, what happened is after after gold and diamonds were found, uh, then came in, especially speculators, people that wanted to make easy money. Uh, began grabbing and, and getting everything they could from the golden diamonds that were found there. And again, this was a, a kind of unholy alliance between what they called the gold bugs, uh, especially Jewish entrepreneurs, who really didn't care particularly about England either, and British imperialists who wanted, who saw this also as a valuable and useful for increasing and, and, and expanding the British Empire, especially Cecil Rhodes had this great vision, of course, of this great empire that was going to stretch over the, the uh, from the north to the south of, of, Af of, uh, of Africa. Well, uh, the British also then launched, again, uh, an ignominious thing called the Jameson Raid in 1896, I think it was, 98. And this was a, uh, an effort to uh, 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 create an incident in which British forces would go in to rescue so-called the outlanders, the foreign, the, their, their fellow Brits or uh, Jews and so forth in Johannesburg in there, and then uh, claim they were coming in as rescuers. It was really a plot by uh, the British as a, a scheme to take over. They came in uh, from Natal, is that right? They came in from the Natal side? Yes, that's right, from Natal. Yes, that's right. Yes. Uh -huh. And the Jameson raid was a fiasco. Uh, there wasn't any uprising. Uh, the people, of course, the 
you know, people who come in, they, they're, they're not willing to stick their necks out much either. They're, they're in it for money. And so such people are not going to be very heroic. And the Jameson raid uh, people were captured and they found documents, of course, that showed that this was not just some sort of spontaneous action. This was a, an effort carried out by British officials to try to uh, deceive the world to cover up uh, really this effort to sort of grab control. Well, it, was fa it failed, but the British didn't give up. Uh, they continued their efforts to, uh, they tried to subvert the parliament of uh, South Africa, the Transvaal, with uh, bribes and so forth. And uh, finally, uh, they made demands on South Africa, the war, uh, South Africans said no. It, war began in 1899, and the fight was on. Sorry, can I just stop you for a second, Mark? Yeah. When you when yeah. you talk about South Africa, though, um, it's not what we currently have. Right, 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 right. I should make a distinction. The South African Republic at that time was just Tr what's now Transvaal, Transvaal, mm. South African Republic. The South African Republic was that. Up until that time, there was the British colony of the Cape Cape Colony. Uh, there was uh, Natal and Zulu. I mean, it was a it was a sort of a fluid situation. Uh, uh, Pseudo land is now Lesotho, or, or actually, it's been renamed I think even again in uh, Bechuana land. Anyway, the, the the British, of course, had various ways of trying to control. But South Africa, the South African Republic of Transvaal of 1899, was not at all the South African Republic of of today, and that now includes of course, all these other provinces. But yes, that's an important distinction to be made. And uh, yeah, and of course, they, Natal is not, it was now, what, now it's KwaZulu-Natal, mm. of course, and that's, mm. that's changed as well, of course. Again, these are all reflections of how uh, tremendously things have changed since, uh, since a, a century and, well, almost a century and a half ago. Anyway, uh, so the British came in and the, the Boers fought a, a good fight, uh, but the British forces were able rather quickly to take control of uh, Pretoria, Johannesburg, the cities, and the railroad. But the, uh, the, the Boers were uh, very resourceful, very, very clever, and they organized a, uh, a stunning sort of guerrilla warfare. They wanted to make the cost of fighting the war so great that Britain would agree to a peace. But guerrilla wars to be successful require a population that's sympathetic for supplies and to, uh, to, to have a place to refuge and so forth. So the British decided, understandably, that the way to deal it with, with, was two things. They called in people who fought themselves a kind of guerrilla war. And that's highlighted in the film um, uh, Breaker Morant, an Australian mm. film, because they brought in people who knew about horse riding, about uh, living on the, the felt, on, in the, on the plains, and living uh, 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 in a non-traditional way. And they brought those people in. That was one way of fight. In other words, fighting guerrilla, for, uh, guerrilla boers with guerrilla forces, or quasi-guerrilla forces of their own. And second, to round up all the women and children. And this was to remove the... the uh, the, the foundation of a, of a guerrilla force, and also to make the cost of pursuing the war intolerable. It meant that uh, to pursue the war would mean the deaths of all of their women and children, and uh, uh, fighters, women and children. And that was 
a horrible thing, of course. And uh, so that's how the British were able to win this war. Now, in this, the sympathy of almost all the, the entire world was really with the Boers, because, as I said, there's hardly a war that is so obviously and so clearly rapacious and greedy and mendacious and uh, mercenary as the uh, as the Boer War was. And finally, the Boers in 1902 did sue for peace, and uh, in, in some ways it was more generous than. Uh, I mean, it was about as generous. The British basically said, you had to swear allegiance to the king. You can still have uh, speak Afrikaans, but we're going to control the country and we're going to control the economy. And uh, it's because it's because the British outnumbered them, essentially. Uh, isn't that, essentially, is that right? because the British just had overwhelming forces, mm. something like five to one or something. I mean, just tremendous. And the British had much better. See, at the time, uh, Transvaal, uh, Orange Free State, were essentially cut off from the rest of the world. They're internal. The only way they could get supplies from the outside was through um, Mozambique, Lorenzo Mar, through the Portuguese East, Af uh, East Africa. And that's a very, it was very difficult. That was the only outlet to the outside world. And, uh, but essentially they were, they were cut off. They're, they're, they had to rely on their own resources. And the British fought, I mean, the Boers fought the war in large way, the, the guns, the supplies they had were captured from the British. That was a, a big source of their, again, that's a guerrilla war. That's how guerrilla war is often fought. Um, but it takes extraordinary courage, uh, cunning, uh, bravery to, to fight such a war, especially against, again, this is the biggest empire in the world, the most powerful military force in the world at that time, or so they, so they felt. Another thing, too, is that although the British, quote, won uh, the Boer War, the Anglo-Boer War, uh, Second Anglo-Boer War, even though they supposedly won, it was really a, a twilight war. The British Empire was already on its decline. Its greatest days were already behind them. Mm -hmm. uh, British also, quote, won in the First World War and in the Second World War. But the British Empire was, was really internally finished by then. And they, in the First World War and the Second World War, the British didn't win. They were on the winning side. Already, it was obvious that, and especially by the middle part of the 20th century, the British Empire was eclipsed and subordinate to the American Empire, the new American Empire. And that's, we're living in that era today. We're living in an era of a kind of American hegemony in the Western world. And Britain, since, especially since World War II, has had a policy of just subordinating itself to the United States and going along with the US, even when it's against its own, you might say, national interest. But that's another story. But the point is, already the British Empire had reached its apex by the time of the Anglo-Boer War, even though supposedly it got even bigger after the First World War when the British were able to grab portions of the Ottoman and German empires from, from the uh, victory or the outcome of the First World War. So. Um, and again, there's a lot to be said about um, the motivation of, of people in all of this, and also about um, uh, the, the very changing character of, of people in our, in our age and our time. Again, the world's sympathy was with the British. Uh, I mean, British. with the Boers during the mm -hmm. Boer War, overwhelmingly with the Boers, because, again, uh, uh, it, was, it was really so one-sided. But... Britain was able, because of its power in the world, 
to more or less neutralize the governments involved. So the American government, even though public opinion was very strongly pro-war, uh, the American government basically took a hands-off approach toward the whole thing. And that's true of, 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 of especially of Netherlands, of, of Germany, all these countries. Uh, Britain was able to neutralize that on the side. That's a parallel with the United States today. There's a lot of unhappiness around the world with American uh, mm -hmm. adventurism in Iraq or Afghanistan or all around the world. Uh, the sympathy is, is not very, but the United States is able to use its power to cajole, uh, persuade, suppress, push people, push governments to do their to do the bidding of the United States, even though uh, people are not very happy with it. But Kitchener, of course, he came in later. He became the commander in chief of the British forces in South Africa, and he was the person who uh, pushed for the policy of concentration camps of guerrilla warfare. Kitchener was already well known for uh, going into Sudan to avenge the killing of, uh, what they call him Chinese Gordon. Gordon was killed in the Sudan by um, insurgent Sudanese who didn't like the British running their country either. And he was killed. And then Kitchener led the uh, British relief force that uh, killed the Sudanese uh, insurgents, you might say, and avenge that. So he was kind of a national hero. He's a handsome looking man. And he was the model for the World War I British poster showing a British leader saying, we want you for to volunteer for the uh, for the war. So Kitchener had a, a great deal of prestige and his prestige increased with his role in the in the Boer War. Milton Mil Milner was another uh, English official who on the ground played the kind of decisive role in manipulating, organizing the British campaign to take over the Boer Republics. Cecil Rhodes, uh, of course, was a, a larger sort of architect of all of this. And of course, he was the person after whom the Rhodesia was named. Um, and um, I guess, was the statue of uh, Cecil Rhodes taken down in South Africa, or was it still there? I don't remember. No, but now, it, was, of course, it was taken down. <laughs> okay, right, right. Well, <laughs> and, and again, you know, even as a boy, I was struck by uh, the Republic of South Africa flag, because it's an odd flag that's a combination of flags. There's this kind of big flag, and then there's little three little flags in the in the middle, it's, it's a kind of a, a, an odd patchwork of a country, even from the white, I mean, the South African Republic before, during apartheid, of course, was, was white ruled and so forth. But even then, it's a, it's a kind of weird patchwork of, of British, of uh, African. It, it's a, it's a, it, not a very stable kind of society, even from the white point of view, much less uh, the utter uh, leaving out, of course, the black population, uh, the African population. But um, uh, the, I guess the point I'm making is the, the British sort of thought that their British control would be enough to sort of keep all of this, this tremendously varied empire together. And uh, that's, that's just not going to happen over the long run. They underestimated However, the Boers. Underestimated the board, well, underestimate a lot of people ultimately. Mm. Uh, and, and I would say even this um, 
that's a again this is kind of a lesson for it for a country to be a successful imperial power whether it was britain the roman empire the ottoman empire the austro-hungarian empire all these empires in history that we've seen one thing they have in common is even if they are oppressive even if they are harsh um, they are only successful as long as people still respect them at the height of the british empire uh, people may have disliked even hated the english but they admired them and so uh, families in india or uh, in malaysia and so forth they wanted their sons to be like englishmen and when they went to london they were impressed london was this impressive beautiful imposing formidable city uh, and that was true in the roman empire if people came from anatolia or gaul the outer provinces of the roman empire and they came to rome they were in awe that's a big difference with America today. America has power, but very few people around the world really admire American cities, American architecture, American political statecraft. Uh, American political leaders are almost as uh, mocked and pitied as much as they are admired, if, if anything. And this is increasingly the uh, and American, nobody in the world says we want our cities to be like American cities. If anything, they yeah. want to exactly avoid that. Um, and, and so that's one of the reasons why the American empire, I think, is in a, in a very swift decline, because not even Americans, not even people here uh, have very much confidence and faith anymore in the United States ability to, to even function as a coherent, organized, uh, uh, healthy society, uh, even here internally, much less around the world. People don't uh, look at uh, America in that same way. So America's you may apex as an empire, as a great power, as a, as a great country, has already clearly passed. And Britain, I mean, Britain still was admired in a way at the time of the Boer War that America is not today. Again, these are all, the, the Boer War is a very good marker, I think, a very, has lessons, I think, for how the, the trajectory of empires and the nature of empires. But uh they have to be above all an empire to be successful has to be more than just a uh, a rapacious powerful oppressive country that just grabs territory and things it has to have it has to represent some sort of admirable has to have admirable features that people will accept that rule because they mm. admire the culture the organization and today uh, and when an empire feel fails to do that when a, when it, when, a, when imperial people cease to be healthy even internally even on their own terms uh it's its days are really really past and the the british uh, the, the boer war was already then many people even in britain were very alarmed at what britain was doing even there were very strong voices of it even in britain itself and of course in around the world in america on the continent in europe and so forth who were, were appalled by what Britain was doing and what the um, what, what was happening? And it just it just got worse after the British um, Jamison raid failed, and they got yes, complete. The they Jamison got complete. Jamison raid failed. Yeah. And because and again, <laughs> the the Boers were able to take prisoners, get documents to show just how uh, greedy, how mercenary. Uh, the Jameson raid and the British officials were in this. I mean, it was Milner who played this big role in organizing and backing this thing secretly, of course. Uh, 
And of course, we, you know, we know. I mean, generally these things come out eventually. Uh, the underhanded uh, tactics of uh, big powers and how uh, they they do things very contrary to the uh, noble sounding and high minded uh, rhetoric they like to use uh, in, in in furthering their ends. And so the Jameson raid, yes, was I mean that's one of the reasons why there was so much sympathy for the Boers because. The, the, the British greed in this thing was just palpable to anybody who cared to look at it. You say British greed, um, but you also mentioned uh, Jewish and other bankers earlier. Yes, well, of course, when anybody starts talking about Jewish power influence, that's a, uh, that's a big uh, alarm signal for people. But it's a fact. There, there's just no getting around it. Uh, already at the time, uh, Jews in Britain had a very, very tight or important role in controlling the, the media in Britain and newspapers in Britain. Um, but the most specific uh, expression of this power in South Africa was the almost, almost the entire total Jewish monopoly on the diamond uh, trade and the diamond uh, industry in South Africa and the gold. That's why they were called the gold bugs. One of the most uh, famous British uh, writers about <clears throat> imperialism was a man named Hobson. <clears throat> and his book on British imperialism actually was a big influence on Lenin, who wrote Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism. Uh, and Hobson <clears throat> uh, was explicit about how decisive the Jewish role in all of this, because uh, Jews have a remarkably strong sense of peoplehood. Uh, if they didn't, they would have disappeared long ago as a people. But this peoplehood means that they have a, a strong sense uh, throughout history, and they did at the beginning of the 20th, end of the 19th century, about their interests and their interests being different and distinct from the interests of other people, among the, the people, the interests of the people among whom they, they live. <clears throat> and that's a, a source of constant tension, because a people that has a strong sense that we have an identity and interest separate from those among whom we live is inevitably going to lead to conflict. And this was highlighted. This Jewish role in the uh, Anglo-Boer War was, uh, didn't go unnoticed uh, to people at the time. Uh, today, it's very rare and unusual to, to talk about this. There's a long, there's a major book that I read and cited in the article I wrote about the Boer War by a man named Pakenham. And it's a very good book. And I, I urge people to read my article and read the thing. But he also uh, uh, is not afraid to highlight this very decisive, crucial Jewish role in all of this and in, in, in the Boer War. And this was noted around the world. Again, today, uh, it's an expression very much of that power and of that influence that we're not even supposed to acknowledge it. We're not even supposed to talk about it. That's how powerful it is. Uh, that's, that already is an expression of, the, of that very power that today people are afraid even to talk about it. But I think any understanding of what's going on, it's, it's crucial, it's essential to understand the role of the Jewish community, of, of, of especially Jewish crucial uh, players in the Anglo-Boer War. Who was Barney 
Bon Otto and why is he significant? Bernie Bernardo, yes. He was one of the most uh, significant uh, financiers, bankers, uh, uh, money men to promote uh, all of this. And again, I, I refer, there's more in detail about all of this in the article, which I wrote, what, 20, 20, more than 20 years ago, I guess. I forget now exactly. Uh, and <clears throat> so I refer people to this. It's on our website, IHR.org. Um, and um, it's, it holds up pretty well, I think, even though I wrote it a long time ago, I think it holds up pretty well over passage of time. Um, but Bernie Bernardo um, was a, a key player, Jewish player in all of this, and a um, uh, ally of Cecil Rhodes and uh, Milner and, all, and, and the others. Again, because on this case, there was a, a clear uh, community, comity of interest between Jewish interests and British imperial interests in this particular case. In other cases, they might diverge, but in this case, they were very much aligned. And so they, they worked together uh, to promote the interests as they saw it, not only of the individuals involved, but of their own respective peoples or nations, whatever. What, what happened, uh, the Jameson Ray was a failure. It was when the failure of the, you might say, uh, grand war with, with pitched armies and so forth, a, a pitched war failed and it became a guerrilla war is when Kitchener's real uh, day came. Uh, it was in fighting the guerrilla war against the Boers that Kitchener was able to prevail. Um, and yeah. you know, that's that's important distinction. And, 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 and so he basically lost his temper. He was looking like an embarrassment on his side of the world. And he said, okay, we're gonna, we're gonna put these women and kids into camps. Well, I don't know if he lost his temper. He just made a decision. That's how we're gonna do it because that's how <laughs> That's how one fights guerrilla wars. We're going to round up uh, women and children. And I forget what, 20,000, whatever, 30,000 women and children died in these camps. They were under hor horrendous conditions. You know, it's amazing to me that uh, during the time of the apartheid South African Republic uh, from 19, well, World War II up until Mandela and so forth, that the British, that, the, that, the, that there was never a great motion picture made about this. The, the Afrikaners and Boers would remember the great trek. Uh, they would remember certain things about it. But the story itself is so uh, gripping, I think, and fascinating that it's, uh, there's never been a really great movie made about it uh, by, in, in South Africa or in, in Britain. The closest uh, is probably Breaker Morant, which uh, Australian movie. And uh, it's a twin with another movie, Gallipoli, and both of these are sort of sticking it to the to the limeys, sticking it to the British, because in the First World War and in the uh, Boer War, the British, the English view the Australians as sort of expendable people, colonial people that they can use to promote Britain, even though these wars did nothing to help or promote the interests of the Australians, the Canadians, the New Zealanders, and the other people of the of the of the certainly the non-white people of the British Empire, and so there's a there's a, a, a very strong undertone in these and many other Australian uh, motion pictures of a kind of resentment of the the English the the Limeys, um, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if you see British tel uh, Australian television, but there's many of them many of the sort of spy stories modern stories have a kind of sticking it to the Americans too, now, who now play the role 
the British used to in sort of trying to get the uh, Australians to go along with American policy and American interests. But anyway, um, Breaker Morant is, a, is just a great movie from any point of view, but it brings out the hypocrisy, the two-faced uh, nature of the British uh, policy in the war, the, the uh, callousness, the cynicism of uh, the British in fighting the war, and the way in which uh, the Australians and other people were expendable to promote these British interests, which were really mercenary, however much British leaders may convince themselves they're doing it for altruistic reasons. In fact, that's one of the uh, piquant uh, scenes in there in which Kitchener is talking to an aide and his, um, his, they're talking and, and he says something to Kitchener, yes, well, the Boers, they, they lack our altruism. And Kitchener says, well, yes, what's well, obviously a very cynical and self-serving way to, to put the whole thing. Throughout this entire conversation, uh, we have ignored the black people. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Well, yeah, I mean, for, for the Boers and for the British, uh, they're, they're kind of secondary in the thing because they're on the sidelines. I mean, they're, they're, they're going to be ruled either by the Boers or by the, the English. Uh, they're, they're very secondary to the, the English, of course, um, use the blacks to suppress the Boers. Uh, the Boers didn't try to recruit uh, black soldiers, the British did, but it's not because they cared about the blacks, really, they cared about the Africans. They're just trying to use them as expendable uh, troops for their, for their own interests. And that's, British have done that throughout, throughout their history. Um, but yeah, the, the, because the blacks didn't have, I mean, they're, they're, they're watching a scrabble between two white tribes, you might say, and whoever wins, they're not going to be on top in either case. Um, it's a it's a bit like uh, how the American Indians look at uh, look mm. at the war between the British and Americans when America became independent. American Native Indians tend to be pro-British because they were going to get a better deal probably from the British than from uh, an independent white American republic, which in fact was the case. But they're secondary to the whole thing, really. They're they're not they're not crucial. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, it's, I think, of course, it's important. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, I recall reading somewhere that they called it the white man's war. It was. Well, essentially it was, yes. I mean, although, again, the British did bring, uh, recruit black uh, uh, people as helpers as, uh, and armed them against the, uh, against the Boers. Uh, again, but it's essentially, yes, it's a, a fight between you could say white tribes, you might say, or white white people um, uh, for the control of, well, Transvaal, uh, Orange Free State, and ultimately for Southern Africa. You mentioned earlier the importance of, uh, of uh, Paul Kruger. Um, our major national park is named after him, the Kruger National Park. Right. Um, by reputation, the Kruger National Park at least used to be one of the most admired national parks in the world, I think. And it's still very beautiful. My wife and I try and go there every year, um, but it is starting to crumble. But it nevertheless is named after him. So he's an important figure in the story right. of the Anglo-Boer War. Right. Yes, he was He was eventually, he was the president of Transvaal. Mm. I think four times, wasn't he? Yes, he was kept on, re right. He was re-elected over and over. Again, mm. because he was uh, such a, you might say, 
masculine representative of the Boer ethic, the Boer character, and so forth. Again, he had he he took part as a boy in the Great Trek. Uh, he was a fighter from the age of sixteen. He was uh, wounded. He was in battle. Uh, he had numerous children. He was I think a simple I, man. I think he had he fifteen uh, kids. I think the only book he ever read was the Bible. Uh, yes. He, he, he seemed to believe the world was flat. I mean, he, he wasn't an educated man, but he was a, a man of character. He was a, a courageous man and a man who had a just un, a boundless love of his own people and the mm. interests of his own people. And that's what's crucial, I think, for any great leader is he has must have that. And so he was very, very beloved. And he died. Um, I mean, he, when 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 the war became a guerrilla war, he led, left left South Africa uh, through uh, and went to Europe. And he tried to gain support uh, outside in Holland, in, uh, in especially in Holland, because the Boers were, of course, mainly of Dutch descent. And uh, he was treated everywhere with respect, but politely turned away because it was going to be uh, harmful to the Dutch-German interests of all these other countries to side openly against Britain in this war that was really very peripheral for the European powers. And he died, uh, he was blind essentially, almost entirely blind by the end of his life and died in exile, I think in Switzerland. It's a very sad, sad story. Um, during the World War II, uh, the Germans made a motion picture about uh, about him, uh, played by Emil Jannings, who actually got an Academy Award in America for uh, his role years earlier. So it's a very moving motion picture. If you can just, I mean, it is a it's propaganda. It's a wartime film that makes the British look bad, but it's very moving, really. Uh, and he's um, he, he it's it's a, it's a kind of touching movie. And that's the only other movie I know about uh, which in which the Anglo-Boer War, the conflict really plays a, a crucial role. It's also interesting too. It's a it's a motion picture made during World War II in Germany, and it has black actors. I've often wondered uh, how how what, what what they what they were like, what their life was like. <clears throat> you might say, um, but um, uh, Paul Kruger has shown uh, in his relationship with blacks to have a kind of paternalistic. Uh, benevolent attitude toward blacks. Now, I don't know how true that is, how accurate that is, uh, but he's portrayed that way, whereas the British are portrayed in the motion picture as uh, just being utterly cynical in their treatment of blacks, just expendable use uh, 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 tools, really, for their interests, and not even even any any human kind of caring for their, their, their welfare at all. Well, I mean, if, I think if you look at the the, the trends of British history, that probably is true. Well, <laughs> like to, <clears throat> yes, I mean, well, yeah, I, well, history, <laughs> this is a, well, it's the same thing. I mean, empires tend to do that, but mm. some are more paternalistic, some are more benevolent than others. And mm. um, I mean, you can find uh, examples of both within the, within the British context, but you can find also both some levels of benevolence or but uh, also tremendous cynicism you mentioned propaganda i'm thinking of emily hobbas and how she pretty much dismantled some of that propaganda right she was a woman who went to south africa she was a humanitarian 
Emily Hobhouse, uh, she, uh, she publicized tremendously the cruelty of the concentration camps and the conditions in them. And this uh, uh, struck a chord in Britain. Um, uh, her sincerity, uh, her accuracy was not questioned, and that's made her very effective. And a uh, uh, very admirable woman, really. And uh, this is one of the reasons why even many British were um, uh, embarrassed, really, by what was going on. Even David Lloyd George, who later became Britain's prime minister in the First World War, he spoke openly against the uh, cruelty, <clears throat> the uh, rapacious, the, the, the oppressive nature of the, of the British war. And so did other members of the British Parliament, a minority, certainly, to be sure. But Emily Hobhouse, she played, she was very important and also in raising awareness. About propaganda, one movie I saw is, I mean, it was made in the 1930s, stories uh, Shirley Temple as a little girl. And in the, in the movie, she plays this girl whose father goes off to South Africa. But this movie is a unadulterated pay on to the British Empire. And uh, a big uh, scene in the movie, she's in London and the siege of Mefeking, that was a town mm. the Boers had under siege for a while, was lifted. And uh, Shirley Temple mouths all these slogans of the British, these terrible, awful Boers are hurting our boys down in uh, our wonderful people. Well, of course, the British weren't invited there. They, they, I mean, they're, they're interlopers there to, the, to the continent there. But uh, this, and during the 1930s, there was a ray, a spate of uh, motion pictures put out by Hollywood that were just unadulterated payons to British imperialism. Uh, Gunga Din was another one. Lives of the Bengal Lancers. Uh, I mean, it, it, there was a whole lot of these movies ground out by Hollywood in the 1930s that were just very, very laudatory of the British Empire, uh, portraying it very, very well. That was very important, by the way, in uh, helping to uh, uh, stoke a British, American public uh, support for Britain during World War II. Because for American, traditionally in its history, Britain was the great enemy. It was the British Empire that America had broken away from in 1776 to form its own republic. Uh, but Hollywood did a, a big job of creating a far more sympathetic public opinion about uh, Britain and its, uh, in, its imperial role uh, that played a big role in the Anglo-American uh, alliance during the Second World War. You said Shirley Temple. Uh, I'm trying to think now. Is she the one who was also in Wizard of Oz, or have I got the wrong actress? No, no, no. no. That's uh, Julie Garland. Shirley ah. Temple was Shirley Temple was very big during. She played all. She was a child actress. Mm. Actually, as an odd coincidence, when I was in Ghana, she was the U.S. ambassador to Ghana. Shirley Temple. Again, yes, uh, Shirley Temple Black. Her mate. Her married name was Black, and. She was put in as ambassador, I forget what president appointed her, maybe it was later, but the point is that uh, America has a history of naming as mm. ambassadors people who really don't know anything about the countries they're supposed to serve, but are made as ambassadors because they're, they, they want to give them a nice uh, title, uh, they're, they're known, they're celebrities. Celebrity uh, is already a very important thing in American life, as we see even recent American elections. Um, and uh, anyway, Shirley Temple was ambassador to Ghana. He didn't know anything about Ghana. Doesn't anything. I mean, 
they could have made her an ambassador to any other country, but they get, they gave her this. And Americans have done that. Uh, somebody who supports uh, very often American diplomats are woefully unprepared. But mm. they're uh, if they had supported the winner in the presidential election, they're they're rewarded by being named ambassador to this or that country, even though they often show uh, well. In the modern world, I guess ambassador is not so important anyway because leaders can communicate mm. very often directly one on one, but it's a nice title to to get. But uh, during the 30s, she was a child actress, very very appealing, sang these beautiful songs and so forth. Mm. But this it stuck stuck strikes in my mind how uh, she portrays the Anglo-Boer War in this very very pro-British way. <laughs> Propaganda. Yeah, it's, uh, well, yeah, yeah. No, the rest of the world, I think, just looks at. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, I go, I travel a good bit overseas myself. I was just recently for two weeks in the Balkans. Um, I mean, around the world, America, it's, it, it, it's a kind of, it, it's just a sad, sad situation in our country, and shows just how far America is. I mean. A, a Donald Trump or even a, a, a Joe Biden would never even been considered fit for any kind of higher office 50 or 60 or 80 years ago in America or in any, I think, healthy country. But mm -hmm. that's what we in a country of more than 300 million people. Uh, we have these two characters that in any, I think, decent, healthy, self-respecting society would never have uh, put into positions of great power. And, uh, influence. If you want to go back to the topic, it's a contrast between the character of Kruger. Kruger oh. was a man of. Uh, I mean, this is a this is a remarkable. And he was loved. It's a, a commentary. I'm, mm. I'm sorry. He was loved by the people. Of course, yes. Mm. He was. I mean, he was a rough-hewn man, you might say, but he was eminently uh, sincere, heartfelt, uh, brave, uh, forthright. Those are qualities that have just seemed to have almost disappeared from modern political life. And uh, the contrast really, that's, again, this is one of the reasons why I think history should be better understood, because we, we see a better perspective. We have a better perspective on our own time if we can compare it in meaningful ways with the past, with our ancestors and with other, other, other countries. I mean, I'm very struck, for example, how the wisdom of the ages not just Plato or Aristotle, but Confucius understood about societies and human beings. And we have rejected all of that with this, uh, I think, utterly arrogant view that we know better than all these people in the past. We've got it figured out. All those people were just uh, uh, ignorant old men who didn't understand. No, uh -uh. this is, this is mm. very, very dangerous. And it's one of the reasons why I feel like I often am swimming upstream trying to have people understand uh, that, uh, the, understand better the, the, the past, but the wisdom of the past and the uh, greatness of the past and the tragedy also of the past, because um, anyway, that's a, but yeah, well, it was very beloved, yeah. I want to then suggest that there are lessons that can be learned, um, but I just want to, I just want to premise that with this beautiful paragraph if you don't mind me reading it's not from your article but it's from a book called the great boer war by i think you all know sir arthur conan doyle take a community of dutchmen of the type those who defended themselves for 50 years against all the power of spain at a time when spain was the greatest power in the world intermix 
with them a strain of those inflexible French Huguenots who gave up home and fortune and left their country forever at the time of the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. The product must obviously be one of the most rugged, virile, unconquerable races ever seen upon earth. Take this formidable people and train them for seven generations in constant warfare against savage men and ferocious beasts in circumstances under which no weakling could survive. Place them so that they acquire exceptional skill with weapons and in horsemanship. Give them a country which is eminently suited to the tactics of the huntsman, the marksman and the rider. Then, finally, put a finer temper upon their military qualities by a dual uh, fatalistic Old Testament religion and an ardent and consuming patronism. Sorry, patriotism. Combine all these qualities and all these impulses in one individual, and you have the modern Boer, the most formidable antagonist who ever crossed the path of Imperial Britain. Isn't that beautiful? It's very well put, of course. Yeah. Well, he was a great writer, and yeah. No, I'm I'm very glad you uh, quoted that, because those are those those men, people of that character, that caliber, are very very rare in today's world, and um, uh, there's a reason why throughout all of human history, uh, people of that character have been and always will be admired. And Conan Doyle did a service in putting it that way. Although um, on other occasions, he uh, could be a man in service to the very mm -hmm. imperialism that means the uh, uh, destruction of, of the people he nonetheless has a, an admiration for. But that quote, I think, in isolation is, is wonderful, if, if, if you can yes. detach yes, from the other course. things. Of course, what? of course. So if, I mean, in closing, what, what do you think we can take from the Anglo-Boer War? I mean, it's over a century ago, you made the point that it's important to understand the past today. How is it important? There's so many ways it's important. It, um, uh, you, could, you can look at it just in terms of, of character, that character counts, character is important. And the Boers, uh, were a remarkable, admirable people who, as Conan Doyle says, were uh, tempered in generations of, of struggle like this, uh, coming from these strains already that were uh, tough. Um, that's, that's already something. And a healthy society has to have something like that if it's going to endure, if it's going to survive. Um, that alone is, is, is admirable. We should, we should always look uh, in our world today and in the past to those people who show exemplary character, um, who show the virtues of, of courage, steadfastness, uh, sincerity, honesty, stalwart uh, determination. All of those things are very much lacking in our age. That's alone one reason to look at it. Another one, it says a lot about uh, the rise and fall of empires, uh, British Empire in this case, but the rise and fall of empires and how uh, they they lose sight of what's really important. Um, that's another one. Um, uh, th anyway, those are, I think, some major, major points about all of this. And uh, I guess, um, particularly for South African whites, they've um, 
whether they were whether Afrikaner or English ancestry, um, they've uh, they're on the decline. Uh, the country is really no longer theirs. Um, it's hard to see much of a future for them as a people, as individuals. Some will uh, still uh, struggle along and so forth. But it's uh, these are very very. Uh, it's a tragedy, really. What um, so? And, what what do you see? Do you? I mean, what is your prognosis? Well, <laughs> a diaspora, a diaspora of some sort. That seems to be what's happening. But uh, Mark Twain says well, it's always difficult to make predictions, especially about the future. Um, <laughs> I mean, the overall trend is uh, we're seeing the uh, white rule in South Africa uh, pass into history, the way that we've seen the decline and the uh, disappearance of so many peoples throughout history. Uh, the Hittites or the Assyrians, they're, they're gone. They're never coming back. And uh, this uh, brief moment historically of uh, white South Africa is, is gone, probably never again to return. I can't imagine. There's no way. And, of course, many white South Africans have, have left the country. But <clears throat> I think it's fairly clear that uh, the trajectory we've already seen in place is going to continue with the uh, results that I think they're fairly obvious with each passing with each passing year. Uh, you said white South Africans. What about whites in general? Well, that's that's a part of a larger uh, discussion, a larger mm. thing. But um, you know, at the time of the Boer War, whites, I mean Europeans or white Americans controlled virtually the entire continent. I mean, the entire globe, the entire globe. There were only a few places in the world that were not controlled by white people. Uh, China, more or less, although that was uh, kind of under uh, Ethiopia, maybe. But apart uh, from Japan. that, the entire, in Japan, yes, in Japan. Mm. But apart from that, virtually the entire globe, all of Africa, with exception of uh, Ethiopia, was controlled by by Europeans or white people, uh, white uh, South Asia, uh, East Asia, uh, Indo what's now Indonesia, and South America. <clears throat> it was all controlled by 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 whites. That has uh, the, the, the and and today, whites are a beleaguered, you might say, group even within the heartland of the white race, Europe, uh, because. And there's a lot of reasons for this, but I think crucial is the outcome of the Second World War, because the Second World War is the first time in human history that Europe, the white continent, if you will, came under the control of outer European states, namely the United States and the Soviet Union. Each of them uh, imbued, each of them proclaiming a globalistic, universal egalitarian ideology, an American version and a Soviet version of this universalism. And it meant almost inevitably that uh, Europe, uh, well, was subordinate to that. And now uh, dominant is the kind of American view of how the world should be. The world should be universalist, should be egalitarian, and it's pushing all of that. But a world that's universalist, a world that's egalitarian means the death the end, not only of uh, European heritage, uh, culture, and so forth, but of, but of all, I think, 
uh, cultures and civilizations. And we can see this increasingly here in the United States. Europe is being Americanized. And the Americanization of Europe means the death of Europe. And that's, we've seen this, we're seeing this here in, Cal in, in the United States. And in wherever the, you might say, dominant American and American ideology um, prevails. And this is what's happening in Europe. There's nothing to stop Paris from becoming like uh, Detroit or Philadelphia or Chicago. There's nothing to stop that happening in Berlin, in Rome, in London, in Europe. This is the uh, trend that's happening because Europeans have either by force or by persuasion have lost faith even in themselves, even in themselves. And when people lose faith in themselves, then everything is lost. And it, I mean, to, to, to put it again in a larger trajectory, uh, it's hard to see how the future does not belong to uh, a country like China, uh, mm -hmm. which does not have uh, that ideology, which has a, uh, a far more self-confident view of itself. And the future is, belongs to the people who, who have a, uh, a strong sense of self, a strong uh, identity, and a, a sense of purpose. That, that's lost now in the, in the white world and in most of the world, much of the world. Where can I follow your work? Uh, our, our, our main website is IHR.org, uh, Institute for Historical Review, IHR.org. And uh, you type in Boer War or Remembering the Boer War, anything like that, and you'll get the article that um, I've written on this subject and much, much more besides. But uh, <clears throat> IHR.org is our website. Of course, I urge everyone to take a look at it. And um, uh, I think you'll find a lot which is along the lines of our conversation here today. Mark Weber, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Thank you very much for having me. My name is Jim. This is Jim Wolfe, The Battle of Ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.